0: Thanks again for joining me on 177 Nations of Tasmania podcast. One of the main themes of this podcast has been the reasons why people come to Tasmania. And sometimes major events far away have driven people so far away to find refuge on this island and try to start a new life. Nancy, who's from Chile, Could be said to be such a case. In 1973, there was a military coup in Chile in which the democratically elected government was overthrown and replaced by the dictatorship of General Pinochet, one of the most notorious of numerous South American military regimes of that era. As a primary school student, this had a profound effect on Nancy and her family, and many other Chileans who would flee the country to escape political persecution in the form of imprisonment, torture, or worse. Many would find their place in Australia in the late 80s, and Tasmania also had a sizable number of Chileans settle here, and though many left for bigger cities, Chileans still make up the largest Spanish-speaking community in Tasmania. So please join me in listening to Nancy's experiences.
1: I grew up in Santiago in a place called Pudewell, and then it changed name. It was like a shanty town. I grew up there until I came here.
0: What sort of environment was it at that time?
1: Well, We were very poor, like we were Mm -hmm. poor, um, but we were happy. Mm -hmm. Uh, We grew up with a lot of humanity around us, more than things, material things. But then um, until I was 11 change look because of the political situation in Chile was mm-hmm. become very bad
0: I guess we're talking about the the Pinochet era mm, yeah I mean I guess for those people who don't don't know I think it was it 1973 there was a the
1: coup yes September 11th of September are 11 of September yeah 1973 happened and that from that this was from a colorful and then we enter a very dark and grey period
0: growing up. Yep. So you were you were quite, you were just like at school at that time.
1: Yeah, I was 11 and it was in primary school, very close to my house.
0: So how, how did you, like as a child, how was the change noticeable?
1: For us and I guess for everybody that lived during that period, it was a before and after. Mm-hmm. And before that, like my family was very political in many ways. And I remember before that, we have a socialist Mm -hmm. government. And during that time, the president have a pledge that we were not going to be hungry. We were not going to, we were going to have education and and health and everything. So, and we did. I remember the tracks were coming to the, my, where I live with milk of different colours because we have to have milk mm-hmm. and that was a right that we had to have. And then after that they killed the president and we lost all those things mm. and it was a period where in September from September during probably a whole year where we had to look for food where would my mom have to cook anything so it was very very um hard for everybody. Yeah, and it was every day. It's like something that we have. And every child, I think the pledge was that every child had to have one liter of milk mm-hmm. a day. And we did have it. It's something that we did have it. But it was a lot of um, discontent mm-hmm. because the poor people were having what we were our rights, I guess. Um, so it was a lot of stuff and we knew where it like even I didn't know I was a child but I I went to school on September 11 in the morning and then I started to hear planes going up and mm-hmm. the teachers were looking and then you start to hear bombs exploding very far away but you could hear it right. and we hear the last speech that President Ayanda did mm-hmm. we, we're still using it in, in many ways but um, I, I remember that's the last thing we hear and I remember my mom crying and everybody and other people celebrating. It was like completely polarized country. Mm. Like it was too, like the people from, the rich people that they were losing everything because we were getting other things. They were celebrating and we were like mourning. Mm. And then we had curfews yeah. where we couldn't go out at all. and we have people that we knew, they were dead or disappeared. Uh, we have people missing that, thank God, we found him, like my brother-in-law and everything. I think, yeah, and it's quite emotional because, in in a way, when we talk about it, and and but the, at that time, you have to survive, you know? You have to go through... Yeah. And you have to without complaining. If you go hungry, you go hungry. If you go if you are scared, you go scared. It, it was something like that. So so that's the way we we grow up.
0: Yeah, and I and so I guess if people complained they got mm. in trouble.
1: Yeah. Most of the people that are they were like most of the people that are disappeared or killed during that time believe in the in the in the that nothing was going to happen to them because nothing like that happened in my country before. So mm. if they were looking for them, they will go and present themselves to the police and say, I'm here, thinking that they were going to have a fair trial or something like that. But nothing happened. They disappeared and died. So after that, when we saw that, we were like, yeah, we couldn't complain. I remember my brother-in-law used to be the second-in-command of President Allende. He was the okay. minister, I think, um, home affairs minister. Mm-hmm. So they were looking for him. Um, my sister had a guard from the military, guarding her and see why, where she go, what she do, and everything. And so our house was going got raided so many times.
0: Right. Wow.
1: So my family, I remember my mom knew and she would send us to the neighbor and we would hear my sister's cry, you know, people and voices, strange voices, And I could hear my neighbor who was a um, Christian, praying. Mm. So then we would go back home and see what happened. And my other brother-in-law who had nothing to do with anything was taken to the national stadium
0: mm. where
1: they kill a lot of people i don't know if you know about victor hara which is a very international scene he got killed there so we didn't know he was going to come alive but he did Mm. after probably two months being there but very damaged still Um, so we have a multiple i I remember one Sunday, my mom was in the catholic church and they came, all these policemen came and these people wearing plain clothes and they say, where is your mom? And they say, she's in church. And this man, and I remember I was wearing only one sock.
0: <laughs> <Right>.
1: <laughs> and, they were, and, I say, and they say, oh, you have to go and get your mom. So they were waiting for my mom. My mom, my mom is a widow, so she only, she looked after us. And yeah. My father died when I was five. <laughs> so, and I say, no, I can't go because I, I only got one sock. And then the policeman, this guy, say, oh, no, you look beautiful. Just go. So I went, ran and got my mom. My mom was in church. And so when she was walking through the street, these people were calling her and saying, come and hide here. Don't go there. Mm. So my mom say, I have nothing to fear. So I, I, I haven't done nothing wrong. So she went. And... I think this is, I, I don't remember, but my sister did talk about it. I remember they were, they were joking that they were going to take one of my sisters mm. with them. And we knew what would have happened to them. And I don't know how my mom had, she hit the, the table and say, nobody take anybody from Kia. And she swear for
0: the first wow. time they
1: went, oh, and so, so they didn't take her. Yeah. They didn't take us. Some God, nothing like that happened to, to our family. And my my brother-in-law, the one that is um, uh, Hernan del Canto, is his name. He was able to, to get out of the country yeah. and live in Germany for a long time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You Well, know, I guess a lot a lot of Chileans escaped during yes. that era. Yeah. And, uh, well, some of them came to Australia.
1: Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. I think Australia was probably before mm-hmm. the people that were running away from a gender. And that's the division that happened sometimes. Look, we know when people, you come in before the 73, mm. it's because you were running away from this and you're coming after. It's yeah. like that's the distinction. And it's still happening here.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I mean also that's Chile wouldn't be the only country where that similar situation has occurred as well.
1: No, because what happened in South America and Latin America is that it was one coup after another. It was like it happened before Chile. I think it happened in Chile and before Chile it happened in Uruguay and after Chile Argentina and then we have Peru, Bolivia. Yeah. So it was, and they, all the military government have a, now that we know, have a, a, a they, they talk about each other. So most of the people that run away to Argenti- Argentina, where when the military could happen there, were killed there because they knew that they were by the government. So they knew everything. Yeah. Yeah, it was quite a dark time for um, the whole America.
0: How did you come to be in Tasmania? I guess is the question, but you can, yeah. I'm sure the story that's starts early. Story.
1: <laughs> There's another story. Being living through all that social injustice that we have, and being a young person, you feel like you need to join something and you need to fight. Mm-hmm. for justice so i um i started in the church like the catholic church in chile is completely different than any like and we even though now it's not like it used to be on this time they saved many lives compared with like if you compare with argentina where the catholic church didn't care and they were on side of the dictatorship this was different we have um um Archivist. I think I'm a, a priest, big priest, that and he's, he set a special place to protect mm-hmm. the people that were persecuted. So I started to work with the Catholic Church, and then I got more radical and more radical, and then I keep, uh, got involved with a revolutionary movement there. Okay. Then I met my husband, and they decided, because I was—he was—, he was political uh, leader. He mm-hmm. was the face and he was in all the, everything, doing all the stuff and I was, I think in that time I was with my friend and we were like and we were doing a lot of um, probably Molotov and things like that but they were no mm-hmm. big, big stuff like they were between the, Sangari wasn't big stuff because I couldn't do anything <laughs> but, but we were doing some damage, hopefully. And then I, I go together with my my husband, Gastona, and they decided decide to be um, going to support him in his stuff so I stopped doing that stuff. One day and I seen this happening, I think it was Mother's Day 11 of May 1984 they raid. I wasn't living with my husband at the time. I had my daughter, which is Trini, the, the one that came with me. But I wasn't living with my husband then. And since it happened in the in um, where we live, it was a lot of unrest and a lot of um, looting and stuff like that. So the cops came and arrested about 25 people. And between those 25 people, they were our leaders, political leaders. So my husband came and he was arrested uh, they did have the same thing. That I'm, that's because I was quite surprised that they have it in Australia. They have people in like, without anything for five days. Oh, and okay. then after that, they will tell us where they were. But we knew during those five days that they were torturing them, hmm. possible kill them. We, we have to do something. And then after that, he spent about three years in jail as a political prisoner. Okay. We When he came out, he was... Very bad because they were killing people. They were just taking people out of there, and we were very scared. So one day he was talking to one of my friends, and it was the other political prisoner after he came out, and they talk about Australia, and we knew one of our friends live in Sydney. Mm-hmm. So my husband went to the embassy, and they interviewed us. They were very quick. They were very mm-hmm. nice, and we saw they interview us, and they gave us um, a date. It was 15 days. You're living in this plane, 15 days, so we have to tell the family and everything. And when we were about to leave, because my husband was on parole at that time, he had to sign every every Friday. They didn't allow him to come out. So we had to stay there, and we had to pay some money to the military, big honcho there, it was, it was like bravery. They got rich because a lot of people that came to Australia, they gave them all the permission to come and drop me off and then go back. And back, you have to pay money to them. And so...
0: Was that unofficial? An
1: unofficial an business for them. Uh-huh. I think it was like yeah. under the table kind of thing. So yeah. we, we, we came that way. So he's supposed to go back to Chile. And so we came and we stay and everything. So we wait until his case, where he spent nearly two and a half years in jail mm-hmm. and um, accusation that it wasn't true, but it was still open, so he couldn't go back to Chile. otherwise he would put him in jail. Until, and he said, no, I'm not going back. One day I spent in jail again, I die. So yeah. we never went back until it was clear. They say we closed it, nothing to see here. So we went back in 19... 19- ITA, I think, after I finished Centrelink.
0: Did you come to Tasmania directly or were you somewhere else first?
1: We had an interview with the I think it was the consul, the ambassador, I don't know, but it was quite, and we we found it so nice, it was such, and we have an interpreter, when he was talking in English, the interpreter was translating, and we were laughing, like, we were so stupid, we never knew, like, nobody ever talked to us in English, and we had an interpreter, but, and then he, he said, it was a lot of people there, like, about four families, we thought we were going to cinema, he said, no, you're going to Tasmania.
0: And did you know much about no. Tasmania? No,
1: nothing. We were a little bit scared because we knew about the Tasmanian devil,
0: uh-huh. and I
1: thought it was a real devil. <laughs> uh, <okay. laughs> we never knew about it. like, um, but then no. But we were very lucky. I think that was the best. It, this is the best place to live. Yeah.
0: So, what were your like? What were your first impressions on arriving in Tasmania?
1: When we arrived it was about five o'clock in May and it was very dark. Mm. And I remember we were we were so tired. Like we were about when at that time it was about 28 hours and we had to stop in different places. So and there were a few Chilean waiting for us with the Chilean plug and singing. Yeah. So we cried, like we were crying and crying and then we were tired. And it was this lady and she was um her name was Joanne mm. and George and they look after us. And they were like our parents in yeah. here. So we were like following them everywhere. So, and yeah, that was impression of our meeting then was so important for us because we knew we were safe. And I think that's so important for anybody that come in to have that welcoming, that people looking after you for a while to say, look, I got you, you're gonna be fine, yeah.
0: So what were some of the challenges uh, of settling in here in Tasmania at the beginning?
1: I think one of the things, and I guess every refugee have that feeling that you feel you betraying the coast and the mm-hmm. country and everything, so you, you make yourself like thinking that you're only coming for one purpose. So our purpose was to get money, work hard, and then go back. And that was so, one of the challenges probably was not to be, it was like 10 years, 10 years floating around. Mm -hmm. No setting any roots, no setting, no nothing, because you were sinking and going back.
0: Yeah.
1: And I think the challenge, no even worry about, learning English because you're thinking about it's not going to be important or something like that, not having a career or looking into education or nothing like that because you're thinking that you're going to go back. Yeah, right. So that was probably one of the worst mistakes because when you go back, it's either I change or they change, everything changed and you miss this place and you think and you look back. Because Chile is... um a very elitist country. If you don't have a degree in the university and it had to be the best university, you don't have opportunity to work. It's a lot of different compared with here. Yeah. Where you have the experience and you have the attitude and you have everything you, you could get there. So it was... And then you compare that and when I come back, I come back with a purpose and I will do my things, and I will do that and I will buy a house and I will... I will get an education, I will work here hard because it's a good opportunity. And also, ignorant people Mm -hmm. is a big challenge as well because you need to educate them. And it's so hard sometimes. I don't call them racist because I don't think they got that. But, but you get a lot of ignorant people around, especially working in a factory. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. Was
0: that sort of your, fir- the fir- your first work experience here?
1: My first work experience was Cadbury's oh, because okay. it was getting money. And I thought it was going to be a lot of money. And when I got the paycheck and I said, oh, <laughs> 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 oh I thought it was more. But anyway, yeah, it was my first experience. And it was with no English whatsoever because we left school. It was not we have to get money so we left school and so i didn't have much english and people were not patient especially when you make mistakes and things like that so and you feel like you don't belong in anywhere yeah so that's probably one of the challenges
0: and i guess when you come here and you you don't have much english and the culture is totally different you are pretty limited with the Places you can work in. And
1: yeah, and I think the factory was the, the only one where, because yeah. it was such repetitive work, and then yeah. you learn it by looking and things like that. I didn't mean, have that social skill because with other people, because I was scared of them. Yeah, I didn't mean, want them to talk to me, uh, even like I smiled, um, wouldn't be nice, but yeah, it was so hard, such a hard um, job. You have the older migrant women there yep. working, the women from Chigoslav. Yeah. Um, you have those people that they will take you under, your wind, under, under the wind until you learn more, and then they will get angry with you.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> and, you still have, like, and I still see the ladies on the street, and I still say hello to them because they were such a... They were like, they showed us that we could have done that. Yeah. But then with time, when you have more ambitions, you think about... That's not going to be my life. I don't want to be until they were there for 30 years. Yeah. I don't want to work there for 30 years. No. But yeah, but they were really nice. And they were very, one of the things that I noticed there, they were very, um, people were very racist okay. against them as well, especially young women, Australian women. They want their job. <laughs> so they were very mean to them. So we had to get together.
0: What were what did you find people were most ignorant about? Was it just that they had some stereotypes about?
1: They do Latin? have, I remember we did have, um, I worked with one of my friends, Rosa, she she speaks speak very with English and then she was able to talk to them and everything and sometimes they asked them if we were using shoes or where we live or, or like they thought where we live in caves. Right. Yeah, that sort of thing they would talk about. And last we will last and we would feel very offended. <laughs> How dare you? We have choose. Yeah. But I know also people, when you don't speak, I remember the, probably the experience that really marked me. It was one day when I was in the line, and they were filling chocolate, and it was a, like probably maybe 10 women, Doing this stuff. And this woman was talking very loudly, and she was laughing, and everybody was laughing with her. And I hear that she was saying about La Bamba, because at that time, La Bamba was on fashion. And then these other women came to me and say, don't worry about what they say about you. And I went, what? And I, I feel so sad, and I think I was depressed, because I cry. And mm. I cry all the time. And I say, oh, take the crying woman away. So they took me to another line where I was alone. So I was crying alone. Nobody say anything. Nobody come up to say anything. Nobody told her that I was wrong.
0: Mm.
1: And then I have to... I see I cry when I go home. I cry for the whole weekend. And then I have to go to work again. We went to to do something. Nobody. I put a complaint with my other Chilean friends that were there, we went and complained. And this woman, it was worse. Because every time I will go into a, a seat, like lunchtime or tea break, I would go and sit and somebody would take and they don't want to sit with me. It was like high school. So I remember one day, this woman tried to talk to me and I was shaking and I said, the woman that was laughing about me in there on the line. So I said, no, I can't put out with this anymore. So... I say, look, we need to talk. With my little English, I say, we need mm. to talk. And she say, okay. And we talk. And she say, you stay that, I swear. And I say, what is swear? And she say, bad words. And I say, no, I didn't say that. So at the end, we become friends. Yeah. So it was about taking the variant. and did she know that it was a misunderstanding? And she never apologized for what she, but I don't care. at least I could work there and people were nice to me after we talked so it was fine they knew I had the guts (laughs) yeah Yeah.
0: that hits on a really important thing I believe in and why partly why I'm doing the podcast is it's really but you've got to have people have got to have conversations with each other yeah because that's how by not doing that that's how stereotypes become entrenched and we think oh that person they're like that And I also, I've heard about you know, not just Chileans, but people from other um, countries that we've experienced dictatorship and a bit of a police police state. The people are quite, come to Australia, they're quite wary of dealing with authorities and dealing, even dealing with the police here because of the.
1: For what's happening there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Uh, we have, I remember when we arrived here, we have a lot of people traumatized and they didn't want to do anything with the police it's a lot of like it was remember it was family violence and people will rather put out with that than contacting the police because yeah,
0: they yeah. and i mean i mean i think that's not uncommon problem not just chilean yeah you no know, probably
1: australian as well it would be the same yeah
0: but i mean i guess uh, the difference is i mean australians people who, who've been brought up here are usually aware of the, the the right authorities and and, and most of us trusts yeah. the authorities yeah. unless we've had a bad experience
1: unless yeah now I remember one of the things that often for us I remember one day we were at the adult migrant education Amy's that it was in Collins Street and this police two police women came in. And they were so beautiful that all the Chilean men and everybody fell in love with them and said, oh, I want to be arrested. <laughs> because, and, and I think that like, the presence of women in the police force probably changed a little bit of the perspective as well. Okay. I think that is important. I don't know now, but at that time um, in my country, they didn't have women, police, police women yet.
0: Were talking uh, earlier about um, the challenge of just having this temporary kind of thinking. When oh, yeah. Here. Been, How been. did that, like, when did that change and what sort of prompted you to change that attitude?
1: Yeah, you know, when we were at Centrelink, mm-hmm. I think I wasn't very, I, I like, I could fly and have my place there and be permanent and everything. But at that moment, I didn't care because my thinking was. I have to go back. Well, it was 10 years living here. So we went back in uh, 1998. We went back to Chile after 10 years. And we got there. I see my husband, I I was with him. My husband wanted to go back there for good. And mm-hmm. he was trying to get everything to go back there, stay there. So I have my two children, Isabella and Nicolas, and my older daughter. She was 12. And... Everything, like, everything changed. Everything that I think I changed as well It yeah. was the same. Or, but I question a lot of things. Like, before that, it, I became my husband' wife. Mm-hmm. In Chile. Here, I was me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, and I was, my husband was trying to get a job and trying to get everything. English, like, it, I didn't have a... I didn't have a a degree or anything to get a job as well. So it was very, very hard. Thank God we did have Centrelink during that time because he didn't carry it at that time. So, but it was, and I was alone because my husband was doing the political stuff, going everywhere. So after probably three months, we we spent six months there. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, I have to go and he want to stay. Mm -hmm. So I say, okay, just stay. And I left, so he had to give me permission to get the children out of the country, which it wasn't any problem. And I come back, and I was homeless. Mm. I was living in um, in Blackman Bay in a convent, there in the Nantes. All the time, the nuns right. come true come to us in my family. They are like saints <laughs> from somewhere and protect us. So I was living there. I was alone, and I was trying to, like, without any money, without any car, trying to do all the stuff on my own, and I mm. was... For the first time, I was doing something on my own,
0: yeah,
1: without my husband, without my mom, my sister, so anybody. And I did it. So I rent a house, I was living with the children, and then suddenly my husband called, probably three months after, say, I want to come back because I missed you. <laughs> and I say, okay. <laughs> so when he came back, I have power.
0: Yeah.
1: I have power to say, look, I want to do this. And I went, so I wasn't that person that have to go after or do. So I ha, I feel really, really, I, that changed me. That changed me, really changed me. And I say I have to do something here. So I found a job and I start to work and I have to do other things. And I wasn't asking for anything from my husband anymore. Or, we were more complemented. Yeah. In that. Yeah, we were like more equal.
0: And how did your husband take that? Did you? Was he uh okay with it or did it take him some time to adjust?
1: He came back because he was hoping and my husband, he was hoping to make a life there. Yeah. To go back and everything. And we left him. We left him there because I couldn't live in the condition that we were living. So I he wanted to keep being there and apparently he was quite depressed. Yeah. Over there. So I think the family did an intervention and sent him back, I guess. So at that moment, it was pretty hard for him to adapt again and think that, look, this is going to be, I have to live here. And it took him a long time to go into that and get it. Yeah. Right. So, so I didn't know how he'd take it or not take it. It was my personal growth happening. So I wasn't worried about, but I knew that he would come through. Yeah. If we were all together. So that, that's,
0: that's the way now he's fine So you came back to came back to Tasmania and things kind of worked out sounded like they worked out a bit better yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so what what did you do when you came back here?
1: Well we were living with my children where got little. So my husband come back and I say, I, it was a job there to work at. I Before I used to work in any Kenny women's refuge without no English, but they got me anyway. They have faith on me. And I land with them and everything. And then the job come again. So I told my husband that I would like to apply. And I say, like, I will apply to the job until you get a job. And when you get a job, I will get out. And I will look after the children. So I applied and never without out. I seen I worked there for a while. And then I left the job and I worked at the Hobart Women's Shelter,
0: mm-hmm. working
1: with domestic violence for 10 years. And then I got this job for another six years. Yeah, I've been working here for six years,
0: yeah.
1: Yep. And I study. The good thing about is that the job that I work gave me the opportunity to upskill
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I did, I have, yeah, that helped me.
0: And perhaps you could just explain what you're doing here now, or where, or where is here?
1: This is the best job ever. This is Housing Choice Tasmania. It's a social housing enterprise. Um, the headquarters are in um, Melbourne. And we, my job is to be a housing officer. So I manage 100, 113 houses in the Tasmanian And I get to know many people. I love this job because working at the Hobart Women's Shelter and in Kenny on the Youth Shelter, I used to see my clients only for eight weeks, I think, and then I didn't see them anymore. Mm. Here I see them grow, have families, but become like. Sometimes I see them when they die, so things like that. That's a Mm. long-term relationship, and you could see and you could intervene when something happened or. So it's quite a rewarding, beautiful mm. job. It's the good thing about this job is that, and I don't know, is um, the difference what the other job is that I'm not working in crisis, mm. so I get to have time and spend time with people um, to see them develop and not rescuing them. Then I see how they're going with the children. So and it's very multicultural.
0: Mhm-,
1: because maybe half of our tenants are from different countries, so I feel like we belong together all in this in this and the good thing is that we carry our Australian tenant as well and it's like educating. I think one of the things that we need in this um, societies is that no have this separation. So people will get to know each other and get to know like next to one my tenant is Australian and like, we have an African person. And sometimes they say that they live in complexes. So sometimes they say, oh, somebody's working in the cherry picking and they go and give a cherry to the neighbors. And in the Australian people are not used to it. Mm. But they get used to it because it's something nice. Yeah. So it's quite quite nice to see that.